This is the Safe Food Podcast. Hello, I'm James McIntosh, a toxicologist with Safe Food. And this is our food safety podcast series where we look at different elements of the food chain on the island of Ireland. In today's podcast, we're going to take a look at food fraud and what it means for food businesses, particularly the small and medium sized food manufacturers and what they can do to protect themselves in this regard. I'm delighted to welcome Chris Elliott, who is an internationally recognized expert in food safety, food fraud, and food integrity. Chris is professor of food safety at Queen's University, Belfast, and founder of the Institute for Global Food Security, also at Queen's University, Belfast. Chris is an internationally recognized expert in the field of global food security. He is a visiting professor at the China Agricultural University in Beijing, and the Chinese Academy of Sciences. He's a recipient of the Winston Churchill Fellowship and is an elected fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry, the Royal Society of Biology, and the Institute for Food Science and Technology. In 2017, he was awarded the Royal Society of Chemistry Theophilus Redwood Prize, and he was also awarded an OBE. Of most relevance to today's topic, 2013, Chris led the British government's independent review of food systems following the horsemeat scandal that same year. So, Chris, you're very welcome. Hi, James. And uh, yes, it, it's very good to be talking to you. And, you know, uh, food food fraud is a, is a difficult and complex subject, but there's nothing I like to talk about more. Chris, that's an incredible CV. I didn't leave out a Nobel Prize here or there, did I, by any chance? Uh, I think it's in the post at the moment. <laughs> Chris, for, just for our listeners, can you tell us um, where exactly did your involvement in the, the whole broader food, uh, food safety area begin? Yeah, thanks, James. So, I mean, I've been involved in food safety for a very long time. You know, if I start to count up the decades, it, it worries me greatly. And and uh, I guess really going back to the 1980s, when Europe was starting to introduce really, you know, some world-leading legislation about food safety, particularly chemical food safety, I, I became very involved in it then, uh, helping, you know, come up with some of the, the European directives, uh, developing a national monitoring program for, for chemicals and food and so forth. And from that, you know, I always call that the, the accidental side of food safety when things happen by, by accident. Food fraud is the opposite. This is about deliberate intent to contaminate food and, and cheat people. Chris, that's, a, that's very interesting because I suppose we hear a lot of terminology used today, including things like food security, food integrity and food crime. Where does food fraud fit into this, you know, the grand scheme of things here? Food fraud has been talked about for quite a long time and it has been going on for, you know, just a few thousand years, James. <laughs> Probably will go on for the next few thousand years as well. It. You People will always set out to cheat other people. That that's just you know the nature of, of, of mankind. And what I tried to do was try to instill in people that it's not something trivial. It's not just your butcher putting a little bit of sawdust into your sausages. You know, this is criminal activity. And I actually prefer to ref- talk about food crime, crime in the food system brought about by people who want to cheat consumers, who want to cheat businesses, and, and will absolutely destroy you as quickly as look at you. So it, it is the serious the seriousness of, of criminal activity. And you think 
am, am I exposed to these criminals? Because I never knew anything about it. And it's, it's a bit of a shock to many people. Well, Chris, your, your institute at Queen's University, Belfast, is involved a lot in the detection and prevention of food fraud and food crime. Uh, can you give us some examples of some of the more memorable discoveries, food food fraud or fraudulent discoveries uh, in food that you've made in food down uh, these past years? Yeah, sure, James. Um, often I talk about food fraud is about salt to saffron. Salt is the cheapest possible food ingredient. Saffron is the most expensive food ingredient. And you'll get fraud in both of those. And you'll get fraud in everything else in between. There is no food ingredient, no food commodity that, that is not free from fraud. So we've investigated everything from salt to saffron, I will tell you. Now, we, we uncovered massive amount of fraud in herbs and spices. And, and this is ongoing uh, subject for us for, for quite a number of years. A lot of it is, is driven by tip-offs that I get, you know, all sorts of people contact me to tell tell me that you know there's some dodgy dealings going on. I, I got a tip off in 2013 about fraud in Oregano, and I didn't have time to look at it until 2015. But when we went out and, and looked at Oregano that was in sale in the in the UK and the Irish markets, 25% of every product was adulterated. Okay, 25%. And now we've done that on a global scale. And guess what? 25% of all organic and sale in the world is fraudulent. Uh, believe it or not, when, when we checked Australia, Australia, it was 65% of all the products on the market were, were, were fraudulent. And we're, we're still doing this. And just before Christmas, we did quite a big expose about sage. And again, we chose sage because I got another tip off. There, there's always the seasonality about sage and, you know, we, we like to eat a lot of sage and onion stuffing at Christmas. We went out and looked, and guess what? 25% of all the sage on the market was adulterated, had been tampered with. We've done a lot of investigations and things like meat and fish and rice and, and, you know, really anything that we look at hard enough, we will find somebody somewhere cheating. So, Chris, when, when the public, a member of the public buys some oregano, they expect it to be 100%. Um, but really, should, should we be worried um, about this level of adulteration of, I suppose, basic foods that we, we, we buy every day? And it's an important question that you ask, James, because it's not the business model of people who cheat in terms of, of food fraud to, to make people ill or, or kill people. Because if, if they do that, you'll actually know that they're, they're, they're up to their, 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 their no good. But often they don't really think about the consequences of what they're doing. So if I go back to that example of oregano, they were basically, you know, the, the fraudsters were adding any green leafy material they could possibly get their hands on and using it as a bulking agent. So we found evidence of things like uh, olive leaves, sister's leaves. And we think, you know, if, if they had the way, the know-how, they would probably collect everybody's grass cuttings and put it, put it into the oregano. Now, we didn't find any major food safety with the oregano, with one exception, that the adulterated material, much, much higher levels of pesticides present. The reason for that was they were using agricultural waste material as a bulking agent. And 
not to alarm people, but you know, I, I know plenty of examples where food fraudsters have led to people ending up in, in hospital and actually killing people. So it is a very serious issue that, that we're talking about. So Chris, I suppose these fraudsters are really parasitic in their approach uh, insofar as um, they don't set out to injure people, but frequently they can. I think to describe these individuals or groups of individuals as parasites is absolutely right. You know, they're there to live office and, and, you know, to exploit us as much as they possibly can. And, you know, what what we need is, you know, good measures to actually stop these parasites from invading us. So, Chris, obviously this should be of major concern to the food industry, particularly food manufacturers. Um, But is this something... Um, more relevant for, the, for shall we say, the, the, the bigger, more multinational companies? Or is it something that should be of concern right across the board, including, the, the, for instance, the small and medium-sized food businesses? Again, the, the, the question you ask is a very good one, a very pertinent one, James, because what, when I investigated the horsemeat scandal going back to 2013, 2014, it really was big businesses were, were implicated, you know, massive retailers, massive uh, meat companies. And what happened to those companies was massive reputational damage. You know, they took big, big financial hits. And what's happened since then is the large companies have really thought much more carefully about, about trying to keep those people who cheat outside their supply chains. And they have put huge amount of resources into it. And, you know, I think it's absolutely the right thing to do. And I, I, I work with many of these companies. When it comes to the smaller businesses that, you know, are our, 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 our beautiful SMEs, medium-sized businesses, it becomes much, much more difficult to really know about what is the right thing to do. How do I keep the cheats out of my business? Because you've got the massive reputational damage, okay? I mean, I've dealt with with small businesses who have gone out of business because of people cheating, not them themselves, but they get implicated in it. And then there's all the issues where you could actually be cheating your customers and not knowing about it. And, and you know, that that's a very difficult thing for, for, for people who are setting out to do the right thing suddenly realize. So the protection of small businesses, medium businesses is more tricky, but absolutely something that businesses have got to think about front and centre. And I suppose there's obviously a resource issue as well, Chris, uh, when you compare small businesses to the bigger multinationals. I mean, frequently a lot of these small manufacturers are, they could be just one person operations, micro enterprises, who have to do everything and they've got to think of everything. Um, And just for that point of view, um, what can they do? really, to protect themselves from the negative impacts of food fraud, particularly the smaller industries? Yeah. So let's let's focus on, on small businesses. And, you know, I, I think there, there is so much effort goes into to the running of small businesses. And you're right, you have got to be a jack of all trades. You, you, you've got to do the buying, selling, the, the, you know, a multitude of different things. Now, in terms of managing food fraud, there are a number of really quite easy and key things that a business should do. And the first is know where you're buying your materials from, okay? So, you know, if a white van pulls outside your door and offers to sell you meat that's 20% or 30% under market price, you don't buy it. 
because what you're doing is you're leaving your business wide open, absolutely wide open, only buy from bona fide sources. And also, when, when you buy from those bona fide sources, buy it, buy it from a source that has a good degree of accreditation. It could have a, a BRC, double A rating, because that means they have had to go through a lot of checking and stuff as well, okay? So only buy from the most reputable sources. Uh, somebody phones you up and offers you something over the telephone, you know, don't buy it, okay? You know, uh, you know you're not trading in stocks and shares here, okay? You're, you're not buying a, 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 a Labrador pup from a guy in the pub, okay? You're buying stuff that could, you know, in the worst case scenario, could kill people. Now, pe- people are going to consume. Yes. So buying from reputable sources is the most important thing. If something is too cheap, too good to be true, it is. And it, it is probably a reject from somebody else. It could be from Russell Cattle. It could. There's a myriad of reasons. And these people who sell this stuff will have the most beautiful stories and tales about how they came about this. And it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Don't do it. Don't go there. Okay. Yeah. Buyer beware. Be very aware. So what, what can we who work in academia and uh, research and indeed the public service sector do to assist these food businesses, particularly the smaller food businesses in this regard? Yes, it's, it's a good and important question that, that you ask, James. My, my advice to small businesses is only buy from reputable sources. Don't buy you know, from, from the white van men. Don't buy from people who phone you on mobile phones and make you offers because you know, it, if it's too good to be true, it is too good to be true. There, it's probably you know, out of date or adulterated in some way. So don't, don't go near it with a barge pole. Also, you can get external advice because you know, I know small businesses, you, you've got to do so many things. You've got to be the jack of, of all trades. So small food businesses will be very familiar with HACCP. You know, and HACCP is managing the hazards in terms of food safety that you have in your business. But there is another standard called VASIP, and, and the V stands for vulnerability, and that's your vulnerability to fraud. You can go onto the internet and you can download VASIP plans, actually, or my advice is go to one of the, you know, quite a myriad of different companies that are out there on the island of Ireland who offer to put a VASIP plan in place and train you in VASIP as well. It's like buying an insurance policy and you know we, we don't like to, to pay our insurance do we you know my my house contents insurance is sitting on my kitchen table at the moment and I'm, I don't particularly want to pay it because I've been doing that for the last 25 years and I've never claimed from it but I can guarantee you if I didn't renew it this year the first thing I would would, would do is would regret that so think about VASIP as another insurance policy and one of the important insurance policies that you should really think about investing in if you wanted uh, small businesses listening to this today to take uh, one thing, one thing from this podcast, what would it be? You're out to do the right thing. You're out to make a living. You're, you're out to, 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 to you know, provide a great service to your customers. There will be people out there 
wanting to exploit you. And, you know, trust is a wonderful word. And, and you know, in terms of business, you know, would you trust somebody, would you give them 500 pounds out of your pocket or 500 euros and said, would you look after that for me for, for a few months and give it back? Well, you won't, okay? Trust is something that is earned, okay? And, and don't trust anybody that you don't know and, and doesn't have those credentials that I talked about. Okay, thanks, Chris. We'll end it there. And thank you for sharing your experiences and insights into food fraud and how food businesses, particularly SMEs, can approach the issue. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you have any comments on today's podcast or you wish to ask a question on this issue, then please get in touch by email on info at safefood.net. If you want to hear more on this or other topics, search Safe Food Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts or join the conversation on Twitter at Safe Food Network or follow us on LinkedIn. If you want to access a range of free resources on this and a host of other issues, specifically for small food businesses, then I would encourage you to join the Safe Food Knowledge Network by logging on to safefoodkn.ning.com. Until next time, goodbye and take care. That was the Safe Food Podcast. The presenter was James McIntosh.